The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. So last week we started a discussion about worldviews and how Christians and evolutionists have very different worldviews, different ways of interpreting evidence, and that's why you can't always just throw evidence at people and expect them to change their worldview, because they're just going to reinterpret that evidence according to their worldview. And if you show the next slide, you'll see just a little picture. We have the same world. We're looking at the same things. We all use geology and algebra and astronomy and biology, and yet we still draw very different conclusions about where the world came from and why the world is the way it is. That's because we're operating under different frameworks of interpretation. And the Bible says in Romans 8-7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And just because someone is a scientist doesn't mean that this isn't true for them either. Uh, their mind is still at enmity against God. They will not accept spiritual truths. They can do normal science, operational science, things you can see and taste and touch. They can be car mechanics and build space shuttles and everything like that. But when it comes to spiritual truths about, was I created by a supernatural God? Did he supernaturally create the universe? Did he do it in the way he said he did in Genesis? That is a spiritual truth, and he's not going to want to understand that. And this is why if you look at things like Mount St. Helens, uh, when it blew up, there was a lot of catastrophic results from that, and it validated a lot of what creationists were saying about the global flood, how the global flood can account for the Earth's geology. We can look at rock layers that formed very quickly from that event. And we'll see, see, rock layers don't necessarily need to take millions of years to form. And the evolutionists will say, well, maybe those ones didn't take millions of years, but how do you know they didn't all, not all of them maybe took millions of years? Maybe some of them, some of them did take millions of years. Okay, well, what about canyon formation? See, this was a canyon that formed very rapidly from Mount St. Helens. And they'll say, well, maybe that one did, but how do you know they all did? Maybe some of them did form over millions of years. Well, what about folded rock layers? Rocks can't bend. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. This entire formation is bent, and yet it's not really any fractures in it, which means it formed while it was still soft. That entire formation happened while all that material is still soft and flexible. And they'll say, well, maybe that one did, but you don't know all of them did. You don't know all the mountains did. What about C14 and diamonds? C14 is a radioactive particle, and it essentially it decays over time into nitrogen. So as time goes on, you get less and less C14. And over about 56,000 to 60,000 years, you shouldn't have any of it left in the diamond. So why is there an abundance of it in the diamonds that are supposedly billions of years old? That couldn't happen if they were actually that old. We'll say, well, just give us time. We'll figure out an, an answer to that. What about uh, information in DNA? Information always requires a mental source. Always. It's one of the laws of information. It is always the result of an intelligent sender. Now, information can be copied blindly, like the copy machine in the office. It can copy, copy information without a mind, but ultimately, if you trace, ba trace back where the information came from, it came from a mind. 
And DNA has information in it. It's not just similar to information, it actually is information. And if you ask, well, where did the information come from? How did random chance make one of the most complex and most dense forms of information that we know of? We'll say, well, give us time, we'll figure it out. Just because we don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not one. Okay, but this is really the problem. You can't just throw evidence at people. We all have the same evidence. The next slide, please. This, this battle is not about evidence. It's about how evidence should be interpreted. What is the standard or the framework for interpreting evidence? And we have different worldviews, and the way you'll see this represented is we have different glasses on. If you have biblical glasses, and if you interpret the evidence through a biblical framework, that God created everything in six days, and that there was a global flood about 4,000 years ago, you're going to see the world as it is. You're going to see a very consistent interpretation of the evidence. Evolutionary glasses make everything distorted. I can talk to an evolutionist and say, see how the grass is green? And he's not going to agree with me. He's going to say, no, the grass is purple. It's not, but that's how he interprets the world. He has different glasses on. And before we get into our argument where we left off last week, I do want a very quick review. We talked about some ways arguments can be bad. There are three ways arguments can be bad, and we should pay attention to these when we're trying to resolve this worldview conflict. If you want to go to the next slide. Three ways an argument can be bad. One, it could have a fallacy. That is when the, a conclusion does not follow from a premise. And again, I realize I'm not really going to do a lot of review from last week because I do want to keep going. But a fallacy is when the conclusion does not follow from a premise. It's not flowing. Uh, and a, an argument can be bad if it has a false premise. Okay? One of the supporting premises is not true. I could say all mammals are reptiles and all dogs are mammals. That doesn't mean all dogs are reptiles, though, because one of those premises is false. Not all mammals are reptiles. Uh, just to review what a good argument looks like. Oh, and an argument can be arbitrary. It can be based on opinion rather than any reason or system. Uh, it would be kind of like saying, you, well, you just believe in creation because you lack common sense. Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> I can actually reverse that. All arbitrary arguments are reversible. It's a very good way of pointing out who's being arbitrary. I could hypothetically say that to an evolutionist. Well, you just believe in evolution because you lack common sense. I wouldn't recommend you say that because that comes across very mean. We should argue with meekness and respect, but it's a good way of pointing out arbitrariness, is just be arbitrary back. <laughs> uh, but looking at what a good argument looks like, the next slide, we could say all men are mortal, Joel is a man. All men are mortal and Joel is a man, therefore Joel is mortal. That's a good argument. The, the conclusion does follow from the premise. Uh, a valid argument, we talked about last week, a valid argument, we use that term, we're saying the conclusion does follow from the given premises. Doesn't mean the premises are true, it just means the conclusion does follow from what was stated. And a sound argument, a sound argument is valid and all the premises are true. So the conclusion follows and the premises are true. And a sound argument always has a true conclusion, always. We can look at an example of a bad argument. We went over this one last week. All dogs are mortal. That is immortal. 
therefore Thad is a dog. Is that a good argument? Is it valid? No, it's not valid. It's not valid. All dogs are mortal, but not all mortals are dogs. Right? That, that's actually the fallacy of excluded middle, but that's not entirely a point for you to remember. And one thing I do also want to point out is that all the premises are true. All the premises are true. All dogs are mortal, and Thad is a mortal. But the conclusion does not follow. So you can have true premises in a wrong conclusion, and that's a fallacy. We can look at another bad argument. You don't believe in evolution? The fact that there are people like you that deny science amazes me. The lack of education and basic reasoning in this day and age disturbs me. What's wrong with that argument? There is no argument. There is no argument. There's, no, there's no premise here. There's no conclusion. There's no evidence. Nothing. All this is is arbitrary emotive language. That's all it is. You may have someone ranting at you, and they're not really actually offering you any argument. They're substituting an argument by trying to evoke an emotional response. And because this is arbitrary, it is therefore, again, reversible. You could say, that's funny, I was thinking the same thing about you. <laughs> again, that's more just to point out that their reasoning is bad, not to actually um, be rude or mean. And also, one thing I did want to point out here, people like you deny science. It's kind of like saying, why don't you believe in science? You believe in creation, why don't you believe in science? And that is another fallacy that we didn't cover last week, and that is the fallacy of a complex question. A complex question, also sometimes called a loaded question. It presupposes an answer to a prior question. And the example I'm about to give is a very common textbook example, and it's a bit dramatic, but that's just to emphasize the point that this is wrong. If I asked you, do you still beat your wife? Do you still beat your wife? You might be a little offended if I asked you that. And the reason why that's, they use an example like that is to really point out why there's something wrong here. It really should be divided into two questions, and that's why this is called a complex question. It has multiple parts. It should be divided. Have you ever hit your wife should be the first question. If so, do you still? That's how the question should have been asked, but they presupposed the answer to the prior question. So if someone says, why are you against science? Next slide, please. Why are you against science? That's a complex question. It should be stated and divided. Are you against science? If so, why? You believe in creation? Why, are you against, why don't you believe in science? Well, I don't. I do believe in science. And you can read a lot of creationist literature. It's very clear they all believe in science. The founder of the scientific method was a creationist. Many of the fathers of modern scientific fields were all creationists, like Isaac Newton. And then one more fallacy I wanted to cover before we continue where we were last week is an irrelevant thesis. I, if I asked an evolutionist, why is the universe so perfectly tuned for life? Why is the Earth so perfectly tuned for life and laws of nature themselves? Laws of nature, like um, the law of conservation, that energy can only be converted into another form of energy. Well, that allows me to eat food and replenish my energy in my body. If that law did not exist, I could not replenish the energy in my body and I would die. So that law supports life. The Earth is so uh, perfectly fitted for life. The laws of nature are so perfectly fitted for upholding life. Why is it that way? And they'll say, because otherwise we wouldn't be here to observe it. 
It's true. It's true. If, if the earth and the laws of nature did not support life, we would be dead and we wouldn't be here to observe the universe. But that's irrelevant to my question. It, that doesn't answer anything. Giving an irrelevant thesis is giving an irrelevant answer. An irrelevant answer. Even if that answer is true, you could say, well, that's true, but that's irrelevant. And to demonstrate this with a silly example, let's say I'm the only survivor of a plane crash. I'm the only survivor of a plane crash. And a news reporter came to me and said, Mr. Kyle, why did you survive that plane crash? And I said, well, because if I didn't, I wouldn't be here to answer your question. That doesn't answer the question. That's true. If I, if I died in the plane crash, I wouldn't be there talking to the news reporter. But that's not the question that was asked me. That's irrelevant. So that is an irrelevant thesis, and that will come up later in the discussion today. But getting back to where we were last week, that's just a little um, review. We left off discussing what are laws of logic. An example of a law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. A cannot equal not A at the same time or in the same sense. It can be different at different times. My car can be in the parking lot and not in the parking lot at different times, but not at the same time. Right? You can't even visualize that. That's not possible. My car cannot be there and not there at the same time. It's not possible. Well, what's the nature of the laws of logic? <clears throat> One, they're universal. It's not like you can't contradict yourself on Earth, but if you go to Mars, there you can contradict yourself. There my car can be there and not there. No, laws of logic are universal. They apply everywhere. Laws of logic are invariant. They do not change with time. It's not like I can't contradict myself today, but tomorrow, then my car can be there and not there. No, laws of logic never change. They're invariant. Laws of logic are immaterial. I can't touch a law, law, law of logic. I can't point uh, some th uh, thermometer at it and measure its temperature. I can't measure its magnetic field. It doesn't have any. It's not made of atoms. And laws of logic are um, abstract because they deal with concepts. They deal with thoughts. Well, why are there these universal, invariant, immaterial, abstract entities that govern our way of thinking and govern what truth is? Well, I would argue it's only God that can actually account for that. God's thoughts are omnipresent. Wherever God is, his thoughts are. And God's thoughts uphold this universe. So laws of um, contradictions can't happen anywhere in the universe. Uh, God is invariant. He does not change with time, so his thoughts will never change with time. God is immaterial, and so every aspect of God's thoughts must be immaterial as well. And God's thoughts are abstract because all thoughts are abstract. That's the nature of a thought. So God can account for why there are laws of logic. Laws of logic, to put it another way, are an absolute standard of reasoning. They are the objective standard of reasoning in the next slide. They are the objective standard of reasoning. This is how you ought to think if you want to be right about something. Putting it another way, <clears throat> laws of logic describe how God thinks different concepts should relate. How should the concept of A relate to this other concept that's not A, or the opposite of A? Well, the answer is it can't, at least not at the same time, because God cannot contradict himself. If we look at John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the truth. And God also says he cannot deny himself. He cannot affirm something and then deny it. 
So there, if God is truth and God cannot deny himself, I come to the conclusion truth cannot deny itself. That is the law of non-contradiction. But if I ask an evolutionist, how do you know contradictions are always wrong? I know that because they're contrary to the nature of God, but how do you know contradictions are always wrong? This is really what we're going to press when we're resolving this worldview debate in the next slide. How do we resolve this worldview debate? How do we show what is the best standard for measuring the evidence, for interpreting the evidence? This is called an ultimate standard. An ultimate standard is what you base all knowledge on. Everything you know is based on something. It's based on a worldview. It is the absolute highest authority you will appeal to. And there are some different worldviews. Some worldviews are monistic Mayanism or Hinduism. It's more of a part of Hinduism. And they believe the world is an illusion. All things are an illusion. There's no distinction between mind and matter is how they'll say it. There's naturalism. Uh, this is the philosophy that all things must be explained by purely physical processes. Everything. It doesn't matter what it is. Empiricism is another common worldview. All truth claims must be proved by empirical observation. That is, it must be proved through essentially the scientific method. If I can't see it, taste it, touch it, then it's not true. If you're wondering what's the difference between naturalism and empiricism, naturalism inherently excludes the supernatural. It's built into the framework. Empiricists would say, I'm not going to believe in the supernatural unless I see it. If I can't see it, then it's not true, which is why these are very similar to each other. Relativism, that's something you will find with a lot of college students nowadays. It's part of postmodernism. Relativism is the belief that truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. Truth is whatever I believe it is. Gravity might be true for you, but gravity may not be true for me. That's what I believe. Uh, the earth may be spherical for you, but the earth is flat for me. That's true for you, and this is true for me. Sorry. <laughs> but w um, what do evolutionists commonly use? The common worldview for an evolutionist is naturalism. Uh, that's not exclusively their worldview. Some of them are theistic evolutionists. Some of them may be more empirical. But the most common form is naturalism. So when I talk about evolutionists, I'm specifically referring to this kind, a naturalist. We need to show that our standard of interpreting the world is the right standard, that the Bible is the right standard for interpreting the world around us and explaining why things are the way they are. And the way you don't um, show people that your standard is right is by being neutral. That's the wrong way to do it. People might say, well, I don't believe in the Bible, so you can't use the Bible. Maybe there are some common presuppositions, some common beliefs we have that we can meet on, and then we can merge out and see whose is right and whose is wrong, whose beliefs are right and whose are wrong. And can anyone tell me what is wrong with being neutral? What? You can't have an argument if you're neutral. There is no such thing as neutrality. Right? That's exactly what the Bible says, actually. Matthew 12, 13 says, He that is not with me is against me. He that is gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Does that sound like Jesus can say you can be neutral? And just because you're a scientist doesn't mean you're not a sinner. No one is neutral. And if someone says, oh, yes, there is neutral, and I'm neutral, 
you're saying the Bible's wrong, in which case you're not being neutral. You're taking a position that the Bible's wrong. So saying the Bible says there is no neutral, and if you say, oh, yes, there is neutral, and I'm neutral, you're saying the Bible's wrong. So the claim of neutrality is a non-neutral position. This is actually a fallacy, the fallacy of pretended neutrality. So someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible, so you can't use the Bible. Let's be neutral. Well, I don't believe in naturalism, so you can't use naturalism. You need to use supernatural explanations, because that's what I believe. Right? It would also be kind of like saying, I don't believe in absolutes. Prove to me that absolutes exist, but you can't use absolutes because I don't believe in those. Well, the statement, there are no absolutes, is an absolute statement. An absolute is a truth that applies to all people. So is it true for everyone that truth is relative? That would be true for everyone. That's an absolute. One more silly example. I can say, I don't believe in words. Words don't exist. Prove to me that words exist, but you can't use words because I don't believe in words. Well, you just used words to tell me you don't believe in words. You see how silly you're being? You cannot be neutral in a worldview debate. Uh, if you try to be neutral, the next slide, essentially what you're doing is abandoning God's wisdom for human reason. Because the Bible says there's no neutral. And so if you say, okay, let's be neutral, you're saying the Bible's wrong. So how are you going to get to the position that the Bible's true? The way it's some, uh, Jason Lyle says it, you've started the debate by conceding defeat. It's not a very good way to start a debate. So two things to remember about being neutral. They're not. They're not neutral when they're arguing for their position. If he says, well, you can't use the Bible because I don't believe in the Bible, well, you're using naturalism. I don't believe in naturalism, so you can't use naturalism. You need to use supernatural uh, explanations. So that doesn't work. And the second thing is, you shouldn't be. You should not be neutral. One, the Bible says there is no neutral. So that's one reason why you shouldn't be neutral in a debate. Two, it is a fallacy, the fallacy of pretended neutrality. And the Bible actually tells us how to argue with the unbeliever. Titus 1.9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as, has been taught, as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. That is, you stand on the Bible while defending the Bible. You use the Bible to defend the Bible. And you might say, well, that's circular reasoning. How can you use the Bible to prove the Bible is true? Well, contrary to what you may have been taught, not all circles are fallacious. Some circles are called vicious circles. That is, it's essentially just begging the question. You're restating your premise and your conclusion. But some circles are virtuous circles. They're circles that make sense. They're necessary. And to give you an example of this, next slide. It, well, I missed that one. I could say, without laws of logic, we could not make an argument. Without laws of logic, we couldn't argue. We can make an argument. Therefore, laws of logic must exist. But I'm using logic to prove that logic is true. That's a circular argument. But it's a virtuous circle. It makes sense. Because I'm demonstrating to you why it is necessary. I'm not just saying something is true because it's true. That would be, a be that would be begging the question. This is what you call modus talens. It's not really super important for you to remember, but the main point is I'm using a law of logic to prove that there are laws of logic. 
right? How could you possibly prove logic without first using logic? That is a virtuous circle. I'm demonstrating why it is necessary by showing the impossibility of the alternative. So, how are we going to move forward? There's no such thing as neutral. The next slide, please. He's standing on his secular presuppositions. I'm standing on my biblical presuppositions. We can't be neutral because there's no such thing. So how are we going to resolve the worldview debate? And this is really what the heart of transcendentalism is. That is the method we're talking about. I know that's a big word, but that's what you call it. Uh, my argument is that without the Bible, you couldn't know anything. Knowledge would be impossible. So the fact that you know anything proves the Bible is true. And I know it might take a second for that to sink in. And I'm going to spell that out here. If the Bible were not true, you would have no standard for truth at all. There, there's, truth is just relative at that point. It can be whatever you want. But as we just discussed, if I said truth is relative, that means that's true for everyone, and that's not relative. And this is what the Bible says about itself, that without the Bible, you could know nothing. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you want to know anything, you must have faith in God. That is what is going to lead to knowledge. Colossians uh, 2.3, In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Speaking of Christ. John 14.6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you want to know the Father, if you want to have knowledge of him, you need to have Christ. Apart from him, you can have no knowledge. And so just to write out what my argument just was in the next slide. If the Bible were not true, then you, can know not, you couldn't know anything. We can know things. Because even if I tried to say I don't know anything, I would know that. Right? You would know you know nothing. Then that's it's self-refuting. It doesn't make sense. We can know things, therefore the Bible must be true. And that's going to be the argument I'm going to demonstrate here. And that is not circular reasoning. As we just discussed, that is a law of logic. That is modus talens. How do we know that without the Bible, you can know nothing? And this gets to some of our basic reasoning, our basic beliefs. The next slide, please. And if it looks blurry, that's because it is. That's not your eyes. I couldn't find a very high-resolution picture of this. We all base knowledge on things like logic, laws of logic, that allows us to reason about things. Uh, uniformity of nature, that is the scientific method. If we want to understand the universe around us, we do a scientific experiment. We base our knowledge on um, the scientific method in many cases. Uh, absolute morality, this allows us to make judgments of what is right behavior and wrong behavior. And some people would say, well, I don't believe in absolute morality. Morality is relative. Morality is whatever you want it to be. Well, the problem with that is, if morality is whatever I want it to be, then you can't tell other people what to do. And as soon as they say, you can't tell other people what not to do, what are they doing? They're telling other people what not to do. <laughs> you can't tell other people what not to do. I'm telling you that. In which case, it's self, it, that's self-refuting. So morality must be absolute, because the idea of relative morality is a self-refuting position. But what makes sense of these things? Why are there laws of logic? Why is nature uniform in the way it works? Why are there absolute moral laws? Well, in a Christian worldview, these all make sense. We base these all on God's word. Laws of logic are simply describing the way God thinks. 
or I guess I should say the nature of God's thoughts. They don't contradict each other. And we're made in God's image, therefore we can think logically. Uniformity of nature. Well, the Bible says in Genesis 8 that day and night shall not cease, and there will always be springtime and harvest till the end of the world. Essentially, he's saying nature will always operate the same way until the earth ends. So I have a promise from God that nature will always behave the same way uh, on a day-to-day basis. And of course, absolute morality, that's pretty easy to figure out. If God made us, then he owns us, and therefore he has the right to tell us what to do. And as his image, we're supposed to reflect the way he behaves and the way he acts. But if evolution is true, then what do you base these things on? Why would there be laws of logic if in a random chance universe? If my brain, in evolutionary theory, my brain is the product of random chance. Just blind random chance and accidents is what formed my brain. In which case, my reasoning ability is the product of an accident. So how do I know it developed correctly? If my reasoning developed by random chance, then how can I be sure my reasoning developed correctly? My reasoning could be inherently deficient, and I would never know that, because that's just the way I'm hardwired. I realize that's a bit philosophical, but hopefully some of you are starting to have that sink in. Uh, Absolute morality. Why would there be absolute morality in a happenstance universe? It's probably a little easier to understand. There wouldn't be. There would not be absolute morality if the universe is just by accident. I can make morality whatever I want to at that point. And I'm going to throw a big word at you, probably the biggest word we have today, a big phrase. That is the preconditions of intelligibility. Another way of saying that, these are pre-requirements for knowledge. These are what make knowledge of anything possible. Okay? So if we want our experience as humans to be intelligible, that is, if we want our experience to make sense and be rational, these things must be in place first. Okay? Does that make sense? These are pre-requirements for knowledge. They make knowledge possible. In the next slide, these are just a list of some of the preconditions. I want to focus on the bottom three there. Laws of logic, uniformity of nature, and absolute morality. These are all things you assume without evidence. It's kind of like a reliable memory. A reliable memory is something you assume without evidence. If I asked you, how do you know your memory is reliable? You would say, well, I took a memory test and I passed. But how do you know you took a memory test? You remember taking a memory test, but that's the very thing I'm asking you. How do you know that actually happened? Just because you remember taking a memory test doesn't mean it actually happened. Okay? That is something you assume without evidence. All of these are assumptions. But how do you know these things are true then? How do you know that your memory is reliable? How do you know that your way of reasoning about truth is the right way to reason about truth? I would argue only the Bible provides these preconditions. They are the only thing, it's the only thing that gives us a reason to believe in any of these. No other worldview can account for them. <clears throat> and a Calvinist uh, theologian in the early 1900s, he put it this way. Christianity is proved as being the very foundation of the idea of proof itself. Christianity is proved as being, the, as being the very foundation of the idea of proof itself. It's the foundation for knowledge. Yep? Are you open to questions? Uh, not right now. <laughs> I can talk to you after, and maybe, some, maybe next week if Pastor's okay with that. Um, going back to our little slide here. So, 
I can account for all these things, laws of logic, uniformity of nature, again, that's like laws of nature, and absolute morality. But the evolutionist is standing on all of these, and he has no basis for them. He is standing on something that does not make sense in his own worldview. Okay? And as a result of that, his worldview is going to be inconsistent. It's going to blow itself up. Right? Like at relativism, like we just discussed. If you go to the next slide. Relativism. It blows itself up. All truth is relative. There is no absolute truth, is what a relativist would say. Your truth is not my truth. But they're both true, apparently. Well, the problem with that is, how do you know the statement itself is true? The statement itself is an absolute statement. It's self-refuting, okay? It doesn't make sense. It cannot stand up to its own standards. If I took this statement and applied it to itself, it would have to be rejected. Okay? It rejects itself. Empiricism, same thing. All truth claims are proved by empirical observations. Now, I would agree many truth claims are proved by empirical observations. I would disagree that all of them are proved by empirical observation. For example, life after death. I cannot empirically prove there is life after death. I take that on God's word. <clears throat> but how do you know the statement itself is true? How do you know that all things are proved by empirical observation? Did you prove that by empirical observation? No, you can't. The reason being, this is a truth claim. And truth claims are abstract. They're thoughts. You can't see or touch a thought. Empiricism cannot be proved by empiricism, and therefore it has to be rejected by its own standard. Okay? And to show you a picture here, secular worldviews always blow themselves up. They're trying to attack you, and really they're just blow they're attacking themselves. So, the next slide. Secular, um, secular worldviews have no foundation for laws of logic or morality and why there are laws of nature. So he's going to do this instead. They will stand on Christian presuppositions, all the while denying Christianity. They will stand on God's laws of logic in order to reject God's word, and that's not going to work out for them very well. The next slide. They're trying to attack Christianity while at the same time standing on things that only Christianity can make sense of. So, what are some objections to this? They may, a very common objection is they'll say, well, you don't need to believe the Bible, uh, to believe the Bible in order to be moral. I'm moral and I don't believe the Bible. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's not my argument. My argument is, is if the Bible were not true, you would have no basis for morality. I'm not saying you have to profess a belief in it. I'm saying it has to be a true whether you like it or not. It's kind of like a common example is if a, someone said, I don't believe in air. Air doesn't exist. Can you imagine a person making an argument that air does not exist all the while breathing air, expecting, expecting his voice can be carried through the air to your ears? He would be standing on something that does not make sense in his own worldview. And if he said, well, you don't need air to breathe. I don't believe in air and I can breathe just fine. Well, yeah, I'm not saying you have to profess a belief in air in order to breathe, but air does need to exist in order for you to breathe. I'm not saying you need to profess a belief in the Bible in order to have knowledge or be moral. I'm saying the Bible must be true in order to ha for you to have those things. So the fact that you have them demonstrates the Bible must be true. And some objections to morality, as we just said, some people say, well, morality is relative. There are no moral absolutes. And if morality is relative, you can't tell other people what not to do. And as soon as they say that, what are they doing? 
You're telling other people what not to do. You're refuting your own position there. Some people would say, well, morality, you don't need the Bible to understand moral absolutes. Moral absolutes are what make, brings the most happiness to the most people. What makes the most people the most happy? And some people might, Christians might have a hard time arguing against that because we do believe we should be concerned to an extent about people's happiness. What is good for them? What is about their well-being? And that's right. In a Christian worldview, I should be concerned about your happiness, right? I should do unto others as I would have done unto me. That's the golden rule. But if evolution is true, why should I be concerned about their happiness? Happiness is just a chemical reaction in your brain, so why should I pick that chemical reaction and not a different chemical reaction, like pain? Maybe what's moral is what brings the most pain to the most people. In fact, I could make an argument for that. Pain will weed out all the weak people we've allowed to live on for so long. Inflicting pain and suffering, that will get rid of the weak people and let the strong survive and continue on. That's natural selection. Uh, also, how are you, one of the things Dr. Lyle points out in his lecture is how could you possibly measure that? How could you possibly measure what brings the most happiness to the most people? Do you have a little meter on your arm that tells you how happy you are every day? Can I point a little radar at you and say, oh, you're this level of happiness today? How would you decide what brings the most happiness to the most people? Uh, Marquis de Sade in the 1700s, he enjoyed tor torturing women. Now, maybe the happiness he got out of torturing women outweighs the pain that the women endured, and therefore that would be moral under this definition. So that's not going to work. That's not a viable position. Uh, some people would say, well, morality is determined by electrical impulses in the brain. It's just electrical impulses, impulses in the brain. Well, then why should I follow them? What obligation do I have to follow my impulses? And my second point is, I don't follow all of my impulses. We don't follow all of our impulses, and that's a very good thing, because we sometimes have, sometimes have impulses to do things we shouldn't do. And also, this is arbitrary. Why the brain? Why can't I follow the impulses in my stomach? Why not? I mean, it's just chemicals. Why can't I determine what is moral based on the impulses in my stomach? Whatever satiates my appetite, whatever leads to me feeling full, that's moral. Why not the stomach? Why the brain? Also, some people would say, well, morality, are, it's just conventions adopted for the good of society. Conventions adopted for the good of society. I would agree that morality is good for society, but what, obliga what obligation do I have to preserve society in an evolutionary worldview? I don't have any obligation to preserve your society. Also, like the point I just made, if society breaks down, well, the strong are going to survive and move on, and all the weak people are going to die off. And over time, we'll get more stronger humans. Why shouldn't I ruin society? And people say, well, we need these societies to stop us from acting like animals. But that's all you are in an evolutionary worldview. And animals kill animals. Animals steal from animals. Why not do that then? Uh, this is work with um, logic, and I'll, why don't we just skip down to responses to laws of logic, if you want to skip down to that. What are some responses that, lo uh, that laws of logic can only make sense in a Christian worldview? Well, some people say, well, laws of logic are physical. They are physical. They're chemical reactions in the brain. Well, if they're physical, then they're not laws. 
That would be laws of chemistry, not laws of logic. Also, if laws of logic are just chemical reactions in the brain, then they're not universal because they wouldn't exist beyond your skull. And if, law, if laws of logic are just chemical reactions in the brain, well, then you and I have different chemical reactions in our brain, then therefore we would have different laws of logic. And who's to say whose is right and whose is wrong? Just because you don't understand my way of thinking doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, laws of logic describe how the brain thinks is sometimes how it's put. Uh, if you want to skip down to responses to laws of logic. They'll say, well, they're not physical, but they describe the way the brain thinks. Well, if laws of logic were just descriptions of the way the brain thinks, then you can never violate one. Because you always think the way that you think. Right? I'll say that again. If laws of logic just describe the way the brain thinks, you could not violate them. Because you always think the way that you think. Okay? So the fact that we can violate them demonstrates that's not the way it is. Some people say, well, laws of logic are conventional. They're just adopted for our benefit. Well, if laws of logic are conventional, then different societies can adopt different laws of logic. I could say, well, you can't contradict yourself in America, but if you go to Australia, they have a, con a convention that you can contradict yourself. That's not going to work. Some people will say, well, laws of logic, they're just a property of the universe. This is how it is. They're just a property of the universe. No, they're not. Uh, laws of logic are not describing the universe. They're describing concepts. They don't describe the physical universe. They describe thoughts. And if laws of logic were property of the universe, well, the universe changes with time. So I would expect laws of logic would change with time. And the universe is different in different places, so laws of logic should be different in different places. So that doesn't work. So this is all demonstrating that without the Bible, you couldn't know anything. We can get much deeper into this, but I hope I just sparked your appetite a little bit. And this does work on other religions as well. Uh, I can point out that Islam, the Quran, affirms the Gospels of Christ as God's Word. The Quran does affirm the Gospels as God's Word. The problem is it contradicts them by saying Jesus was not the Son of God and he never died on a cross. You have a big issue there. We can talk about uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Hinduism. These all have very similar issues as we've been discussing. If you want to learn more, you can go to um, Answers in Genesis and Google The Ultimate Proof of Creation by Jason Lyle. Uh, he has a free um, lecture on this. You can watch it a few times if you need to. But he explains it very well. So I hope I sparked your appetite just to start learning more about this. That without the Bible, you couldn't prove anything. You couldn't know anything. So the fact that you know anything proves that the Bible is right. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to have a belief in it, but the Bible does need to be true in order to, for you to know anything. And the way Paul puts this in Romans is that, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, in their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing each other. By the very nature of the way humanity acts, they demonstrate that they do know God, and they do know he exists, and they're just suppressing that truth. If we have another session, maybe we'll go a little further in the explanation, but you're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 
6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.